Welcome. We're in the uh, home stretch of a series through the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And I thought this week as we come to Thanksgiving that's, that's coming up around the corner, you're supposed to think of the things you're thankful for. And one of the things I'm thankful for is a church that is actually willing to read the Bible. Every week you allow me to post homework online. You read a couple of chapters of the Bible. We're doing that together as a church. It's a beautiful thing. So I'm thankful that you're a church that actually reads the Bible. And I'm thankful that you're a church that allows me to teach through entire chapters of the Bible, verse by verse, which is what we're going to do tonight. And I'm thankful for a church that is going to also be willing to put up with a lot of Bible tonight because you are going to get a lot of Bible here at refuge tonight. Last week, we looked at some relationship challenges with our friends. And we know how challenging relationships with friends can be, but tonight we're going to turn the corner. We're going to look at relationship challenges with our enemies. Sometimes our friends and enemies can cross over a little bit there. Romans chapter 12, we're going to start in the New Testament tonight, and this is going to be the foundation for everything that we talk about this evening. Romans chapter 12, this was written by Paul, and in verse 19, he says this. He says, dear friends, he's talking to a church, he says, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Verse 20, he says, instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Verse 21, then he ends, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil, how? By doing good. So let me catch you up where we're at in the story. If you've slept since the last time we gathered and you've forgotten, David has now been anointed uh, the new king, the next king of Israel to replace Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And so far, we've been given a glimpse into some of the characteristics and what kind of king this king will be. He's slain a giant using unconventional methods. He's shown deep loyalty to his friend Jonathan. And throughout all of this, he's exhibited tremendous amounts of faith This week, we're going to see how David then deals with his enemies. Does he follow what they teach in the New Testament all the way back in the Old Testament? And I'll tell you tonight, my working title for this sermon all week was Grace in a Cave. So just hold on to that thought, Grace in a Cave, as we go through this tonight. We're in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. I'm using the New Living Translation, if you'd like to read along on your phone. Otherwise, the words are on the screen. Verse 1 says, After Saul remember him, returned from fighting the Philistines. That's the pagan nation that is constantly battling Israel. It's enemy number one for the nation of Israel, the Philistines. He says he was told that David, David is enemy number one for Saul, had gone into the wilderness to En Gedi. Anybody been to En Gedi recently? No? Okay. It's 35 miles outside of Jerusalem. It's on the western shore of the Dead Sea, and it is an area that is completely surrounded by desert. And so if you're running to run and hide, it's hard to get there. But when you get there, there's an oasis. There's caves. There's these beautiful waterfalls. If you look up pictures of it, and if there's caves and there's water, that means there's probably food and resources, and there's the desert all around it, so it's hard to get to. So this is a great place now for David to be hiding. David is hiding there, we're told, with about 600 men that are with him. So verse 2, it says, so Saul, he comes back from this one battle. Now he's going to go look for his real enemy, David. He says he chose 3,000 elite troops from all of Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. 
So David puts together, or I'm sorry, Saul puts together this elite squad of 3,000 men. So these are like the Navy SEALs or the Rangers or whatever you will of Israel. And they're going to go down and hunt this enemy that's hiding. David, again, is with 600 men. They are not quite elite. It's a ragtag group of rebels and misfits that David has with him. So 3,000 versus 600. David versus Goliath all over again. Here we go. Verse 3. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. You guys laugh like you're in children's ministry back there. Those of you who are parents, you may have this great piece of literature at home. I don't, I don't know if you have this one or not that you've read to your child. Everybody poops. Anybody, it's, have you read that one? It's like they go through the giraffe and they have big poop and, you know, it goes through the camels or whatever. And it's, it's trying to teach kids that it's normal. Everybody does it. But here in the Bible, yes, they tell us that that is a true story that even kings must relieve themselves. But here's the thing, as a king, this would be the most vulnerable position you would ever find yourself in. Because like our presidents, king would have a secret service. He would have guards. They would always be around him for protection. But when nature called, well, he'd want a moment of privacy because yes, it was still awkward in 1000 BC for somebody to talk to you when you went into the restroom or made eye contact. So he wants some privacy here when he goes to relieve himself. It goes on, it says, but as it happened, which is always a great phrase in scripture. It's like, oh, what a crazy coincidence. It really means that as it happened, because God is involved, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. What do you know? For the last three or four chapters we've been reading, Saul has been looking for his chance to kill David. But now we're told that David has his chance to kill Saul. And so verse 4 says, now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So could you draw this up any better? The enemy who has been hunting you without cause, the enemy to whom you've done nothing for him to hunt you, handed to you here on a silver platter. And so I have to believe that the voice in David's head, you know that voice, right, that talks to all of us nonstop in our head, that voice in his head is saying, David, seize this opportunity. Kill your enemy. David, you know if the roles were reversed, you know what he would do. And then he begins that justification. Well, God said, I want to be the next king. And to become the next king, we have to eliminate the former king. But he's not only got the voice in his head that's talking to him in this moment, he's got the voice of his friends. These friends who have been on the run with David, these friends who have been hiding and starving and no place to call home, and they're like, David, the Bible clearly states you can do with Saul as you wish. Look how God has teed him up, take the swing. When someone hurts us, it's natural to want to hurt them back. Can we admit that? It's natural to want to hurt them back, to return evil for evil, to get our pound of flesh. And so someone yells at us. It's natural to do what? To yell back at them. Or someone cheats us or someone lets us down. It's natural to want to show them exactly what that feels like by returning the favor. Someone attacks our character. Who in the room doesn't want to tear them down and make them feel like they made you feel? It's natural to seek revenge. It's natural to retaliate. It's natural to seek retribution. But God hasn't called us to live 
in the natural. He's called us to live in the supernatural. Our instincts, our feelings, that voice that nags us in our head can often be a great enemy, a bigger enemy than the person we think who is our enemy. And then you add to this, if you turn that gain down just a hair, Jeff, I think that'll get rid of that ringing. If you add to this, those around us who are encouraging us to indulge in those natural instincts, and then they sprinkle a little bit of God on top. And so when we kill our enemy, though, that's the end of that situation, right? It's over. We've killed them. And so once we kill them, there goes our chance for reconciliation. There goes our chance for God to use this relationship for growth. There goes our chance for God to do something bigger with that relationship. I'm reading a book right now. I actually just finished it this week. It's called 10% Happier. And by reading, I meant I listened to it on Audible because that's how I've done books a lot lately. But the basic premise of this book, I'm just looking for a little bit more happiness in life. And I'm like, 10%. That sounds like a good return on investment. I'm looking for that 10% more of happiness. That'd be great. And as I started reading this book, I thought it would give me a lot of, like, you know, steps to become happier in life, but he actually gives one step, and it's meditation. So I didn't know I was reading a book on meditation. It certainly wasn't what I was seeking. I'm not a meditator per se, but I listened to the book anyway. And as I went through it, what I got from it, if you read a book, if you get one or two things, I think that's a good thing. What I got is I need to learn to be more mindful. I need to live in the present. I need to pay attention to when that voice in my head starts yammering on and on and on and never shuts up and pull myself back to the present. So I don't know about you, but that voice in my head, he's very good and he's very creative when it comes to returning evil for evil and then justifying the reasons I should do that. Like what I can say or when I say it, what it's going to look like for their faces, for me to attack them, and how good that's going to feel. And my voice is just, just telling me all these ways of what I can say and how good it's going to feel. But then if I stop for a moment and recognize that voice and its lies, I can be quiet for a moment in the present so that I can better hear God's voice and not that voice. And God's voice usually says to me, why don't you spend that energy and some brain power figuring out how to love that person? Why don't you use that same energy to do good to those who hurt you? To maybe show a little compassion and mercy and grace and love like I've shown you. And so as I mentioned, David has already defeated a giant in this story. And he was a formidable opponent. But that giant, Goliath, I think has nothing on the giant of our natural instincts that he's going to have to overcome now. And so let's continue the story. It says, so David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then immediately David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut off Saul's, or cut Saul's robe. And maybe you're thinking tonight, well, he didn't kill him, right? So he did a good thing here. What's, what's the big deal? He, he just took a little souvenir to show that he could have killed him. And David actually showed grace, right, by not killing this enemy. But let me give you a little context so you can understand why this begins to bother David. In this culture, to remove a piece of someone's clothing, even a little piece of it, was one of the greatest insults to their character. And I tried to think of a modern version of, of how we could bring that current, but I couldn't think of one. Maybe you can tell me later. Maybe it's a giant eye roll or something. I don't know. But this is a, a major insult to do this to somebody. 
And so as soon as David cuts Saul's robe, we're told that his conscience began bothering him, or maybe your translation says his heart began to hurt. Why? Why does David's heart begin to hurt when he attacks Saul in this way? We learned a few chapters back that David is a man after God's own heart. And so as he cuts this robe, he realizes that even though the Spirit of God has departed from Saul, he still wears the purple robe. He's still God's anointed king. Exodus 22 also says, you must not dishonor God or curse your rulers. And that's a command I know a lot of Bible literalists like to ignore today as they pick and choose, but it says it right there, don't curse your rulers. David knows that even though Saul is a flawed and sinful man, he is still the king that God has on the throne. And so when we're hurt, when someone causes us pain, we can forget that these enemies are still people that God created in his image and people that he loves. And so many of us in the room, that's why you ended up at this church, have been maybe hurt by the church. But no matter how much wrong whatever church or church people has ever done to you, they are still a part of the body of Christ. They are still holy. They are still anointed as kings and queens. They've been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Jesus. They are still our brothers and sisters. Or maybe your enemy is a non-Christian. Well, these are people that God still wants to redeem. And so when we return evil for evil, what does that do to our ability to witness to those people? To be human is to have enemies. We either know people whom we have a hard time loving, or we know people who have a hard time loving us, or most likely we all have both. And so the question isn't whether or not we will have enemies. The question is whether or not we will allow our conscience to move us towards the supernatural and not our natural instincts. And so let me read this verse because it's important. Verse 5, but when David's conscience began bothering him, uh, but then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's rope. Have you ever, like, just verbally dug into someone I mean, you, you did it good too, right? You made them feel stupid or you made them look stupid or you really got them twisted up and, you know, you, you really did it to them. And what you thought was going to feel really good when you did that afterwards just kind of felt yuck. You know what that means? It means you have a conscience. It means a supernatural, God-given conscience resides within you. From birth, we feel guilt. We feel shame. We know when we've done something wrong, and we feel good when we've done something right. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2. I'm going to use the message translation. It's a paraphrase, but listen to how Peterson says this. He says, when outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation, there is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, God's right and wrong. That's their conscience. And so David cuts off this little piece of Saul's robe, and immediately his conscience knows that he has done something that is not pleasing to God. 
that he does not have the right to play judge, jury, and executioner. And so verse 6, he said to his man, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. Remember that line that he calls Saul. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men, because they probably want to kill him too, and did not let them kill Saul. And so meanwhile, all this is happening, right? These guys are making decisions. David's working through the voices in his head. And as all this is happening, Saul uses the restroom, but he's oblivious to it all. Unaware of really just how vulnerable he was, unaware that David could have ended his life in that moment. And so verse 8 says, after Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him. Here's that phrase again, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. David defeated Goliath in a very unconventional way, using very unconventional weapons. He did not use a sword. He came with a rock and a sling, and it turned out to be very effective. So as David now takes down this giant, and then we could look at two giants. It's the voice in his head and the king with 3,000 armies. As he takes down this giant, he's going to use another unconventional weapon. He's going to march out onto the battlefield to fight this giant with an amazing weapon called humility. And so let me paint the scene. Saul has relieved himself in the cave. He comes out of the cave. As he's walking away, he hears someone yelling, my Lord, the king. And he turns around and he sees this man. And it's this man he's been hunting for years, his enemy. And there is his enemy shouting, my Lord, my king, lying face down, bowing before him, prostrate on the ground in complete humility. Have you ever tried this approach with your enemies? Came out and just bowed in humility before them. I'll tell you, I said I would share some this week of, of how this has spoken to me. I'm not going to give you the scenarios, but I've tried it a few times this week, and I will tell you it is an amazing weapon. So you're in a difficult conversation. And it's that difficult conversation where you want to come in and you want to start pointing your finger. And you're ready to fight. And you've got that ammunition in hand that you're going to use for that fight. But instead, you come in in humility, bowing before the person. Try it out. See how it diffuses that situation. And so David has spent years hiding from Saul. And he's been doing hiding, he's been hiding, he's been hiding, and now all of a sudden he just decides to walk right out into the open, lay down on the ground, 100% vulnerable, and says, I know you want to kill me, here I am, my Lord. And at the same time, I want us to see that as David is bowing here before this earthly king in full submission, he's also bowing before his heavenly king in an act of worship. Because he has to be saying to God, God, this isn't easy but I'm going to do this. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my faith in you. It is your breath in my lungs, and so I'm going to trust you. You've asked me to move beyond the shore into the waves, and so here I am, my Lord. Verse 9, then David shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes that it just isn't true. How many conflicts could be avoided if we would just stop listening to what others told us about someone and went directly to that person and asked them about the situation. Continues, for the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in that cave. 
Some of my man told me to kill you. Throws them under the bus a little bit. But I spared you, for I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. I could have killed you in that cave, but I showed you grace. Verse 11, he says, look, my father. It's an important word. David changes the titles. It's no longer my king. It's no longer my enemy. It's my father. It's technically his father-in-law. Saul is married to the daughter, or David is married to the daughter of Saul. He says, my father. What's happening here? Why does he do that? I think he's trying to establish that, hey, don't forget, we're part of the same team. We're part of the same family. You're my father. I'm your son. It's kind of what Jesus does with Judas, right? Judas comes to betray him. What does he say? Hello, my friend. I don't know who your enemies are, but when you confront them, maybe try that. Try appealing to that common interest. Hey, I know we've hurt each other, but we're a part of the same church, capital C or little c. We're part of the same country. No matter if we're Republican or Democrat, we don't have to be enemies. We can find a common ground. We're part of the same planet. We're all human beings. Let's find some common ground. And so he says, look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting to kill me. David doesn't pretend to be oblivious to Saul's plan. He calls it for what it is. I know what you've been trying to do. He gets it right out there in the open. And so David is humble, he's respectful, but he also speaks truth in this situation. And so that truth has to be out there in the open before we can begin to resolve it. Verse 12, this is David still speaking. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me. He's saying that's God's business, that's not God's job, that's not mine. But he says, but I will never harm you. He says, as the old proverb says, this proverb is not in the Bible. It's some other proverb that he's pulling from. But he says, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I will never harm you. In verse 14, he says, who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? And so David is saying, look, man, I'm not even a threat. It's just little me. You're big. You're powerful. You control the army. It's just me and this small group of misfits hiding in a cave. Why do you care about us? I'm no threat to you. I'm a flea. And that ends David's longest unbroken speech in all of Scripture. The great king. Throughout the Old Testament, he gives his most eloquent speech. And what's its purpose? Reconciliation with an enemy. That's how important this is. And so how now is his enemy, Saul, going to respond? And before we get to that, I know it can be easy to read this story and to put ourselves into the role of David, right? He's the one being attacked. He's the one being unjustly treated. He's the one we call the good guy. But probably just as likely we're Saul. We're the one who has done the hurting, we're the one who has believed things that someone has said about someone else and then went on the attack. We're the one someone else is trying to figure out how they can do good for the evil we bestowed upon them. And so as we read this, we need to pay attention with how Saul responds just as much to the grace and humility that David showed. 
And so verse 16, when David had finished speaking, Saul called back. Is that really you, my son, David? And then we're told he begins to cry. Saul has been this man filled with animosity and hate. He's been seeking to kill David. Even remember last week, he refused to even use his name. He just calls him son of Jesse. But now something has changed. What has disarmed him so much that he's crying and calling David by name and his son? This is another one of those weeks where I can say, I don't know. Saul is a complicated person. We've said that from the beginning of the story. Human beings are complicated beings. So what I'm going to do as we finish here is I'm going to give you some maybes to what might be happening in Saul's head as we finish the text. So maybe in this moment, what Saul is feeling is regret. Or maybe he's been triggered, and all his failures and all his disappointments, when he sees the humility, it all just starts flooding back at him. And so verse 17, it continues, he said to David, Man, you are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. And so Saul's just bluntly honest. He says, you're a better person than I am. So maybe what's happening here with Saul is it's the kindness, it's the grace of David that has now moved him to these tears that has just totally disarmed him in this moment. Verse 18, it says, yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today, for when the Lord put me in the place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. And so maybe what's happening with Saul and why he's crying is he realized he could be dead, but now he's alive and he's just thankful. Verse 19, it says, Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And so maybe what's happening here is Saul is realizing that while David has been his enemy, Saul has not been David's enemy. And verse 20 says, And now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. So I don't know, again, what's going on in Saul's heart. I don't know what's going on inside of his head. But here's one thing I do know with certainty about Saul. He's a broken man. And he's been broken down by the humility and grace of David. And what we find is when a person is broken to their core by grace, there comes with that a tremendous opportunity. A tremendous opportunity for change in the church. We call that repentance. A tremendous opportunity for redemption, of leaving our old self behind. An opportunity for restoration. An opportunity for reconciliation. So how then is Saul going to respond to this tremendous opportunity of grace? Verse 21, he says, Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. And if that's lost of you, on you, here's what happens. Instead of repentance, instead of redemption, instead of reconciliation, Saul's only concern continues to be himself. It's common for a new king to wipe out all the members of the family of the old king. And in those days, your legacy was your life. That was your everything. And so Saul has been trying to kill David, and so now he's afraid that David will become king and he will kill his entire family. And so Saul is weeping but there's no repentance. There's still only pride. So verse 22, Saul, or David promised this to Saul with an oath. 
So David does agree to do what Saul asked him, but he promised that to Jonathan a few chapters ago as well, so this isn't a new promise. But David could have said in that moment, listen, you call off that manhunt, and then I'll make you that promise. But he doesn't do that. He simply returns good for evil. And the chapter ends by saying, then Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. And we can just gloss over that line because it's at the end of the chapter. It's an important line. David does not go home with Saul. Just because you treat an enemy with love and with humility and with grace doesn't mean you have to be stupid. David knows what would be waiting for him with Saul. There's an old saying, I'll finish with this, that says, Revenge is sweet. It's not. If you've ever gotten revenge on someone, it's, it's not sweet. It's bitter. It makes you miserable, and it also breeds more evil into this world. And that's important because someone will wrong you. Someone will hurt you. And you'll describe them as your enemy. And I promise that will happen. It might happen today. It might happen this week. It's going to happen this year at some point in time. And you're going to take that person. You're going to put them into the enemy classification. And then at some point, there's going to be an opportunity that comes along for you to get revenge, to get even. And what you do in that moment, how you respond, that's what reveals your heart. David's friends told him to attack his enemy. They even said God said so. But here again, let's look what God really said in his word. Back to Romans verse 20, it says, If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And then it's this weird line, In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. To heap burning coals of shame means that our act of love, our act of humility, will invade their conscience. And it might bring about guilt and shame. And when somebody is brought to guilt and shame, they're brought to conviction. And conviction leads to repentance, and repentance leads to reconciliation and redemption. And David did this so well. We saw it in this story. He bowed before the king in humility. But Saul chose pride over repentance. And in future chapters, we're going to see he's right back to trying to kill David. Jesus is the greater David. He's the greater king. And so how does that king respond to his enemies? Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God showed his great love for us by sending his son to die for us while we were still sinners. Sinners just means while we were still rebels and enemies of God. And so God, this all-powerful, glorious, majestic being, humbled himself, bowing down as a baby, born in a manger, living in poverty, an outcast, humiliated, dying a criminal's death, feeding his enemies, giving us living water to drink, returning infinite good for our evil. And so again, I'll close with Paul's words in 1 Timothy. He says how we're supposed to respond to that knowledge. Verse 13 says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. That's the appropriate response to an act of grace and humility when those coals of shame are heaped on our heads. Saul was moved by David's grace. He certainly was. There were tears. He just wasn't moved to repentance. He wasn't moved to change. And so I'll end with this question tonight. Are you willing to allow Christ's grace to change you? Because loving our enemies, it's hard. It's going to take some change to our natural selves to make that happen. To come in, not pointing our finger, but with a huge helping of grace and humility is not easy. But I'll tell you, it is possible when we remember the grace that Christ abundantly poured out on his enemies, of which I was the worst. Let's pray.